Well, here's a book that I recommend for your consideration if you haven't read Francis Schaeffer's classic, How Should We Then Live? You see, the subtitle is The Rise and Decline of Western Thought and Culture. And I would recommend this book to all high school and college-aged Christians, young people. It's a great overview of the history of Western thinking and where we are now. He wrote this in the latter half of the 20th century. Now we're a little bit further on. It's been 50 years since this book was published. But he had the foresight to see that the lifestyle, the morality, the ethics that a culture lives by is based upon its theology. It's based upon its philosophy. It's based upon those key foundational ideas that have been undermined and replaced in a secular humanist worldview in the Western societies. And we see the outflow of that in our current time. And it's accelerating and speeding up even in the last couple of years. And so if you want to understand the connection and the relationship between beliefs and ideas and actions and living your daily life, well, this is a great place to go. Another great place to go is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So open up your Bibles, please, to Romans 12, 1 and 2. I put Francis Schaeffer's book up here for a recommendation at our introduction to the sermon today because we are embarking on a new study, and you say, well, we're still in Romans. Well, yeah, we are still in Romans, but Romans chapters 12 through 16 are so different in style, tone, and content from Romans 1 through 11 that it's, it's almost like we're starting a whole new study, a whole new book in God's Word. But this new study is built upon the foundation of everything we've learned in Romans 1 through 11. This is a consistent pattern you see throughout Scripture. Doctrine is the foundation for practice. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. And so Paul does this in a number of his letters, laying out the doctrinal foundation that forms our beliefs and then showing how those beliefs are to be translated into our daily lives of loving our families, working at our job, building up the church of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of practical ramifications that come out of the ideas that we've been studying in Romans 1 through 11. And so I'm really excited to start this new series here in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And man, what a way to start. Romans 12, 1 and 2 are some of the most loved verses in the Bible for good reason. I'll read them for you here. Open up your Bibles, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect." There is so much in here that I want to unpack for you today. Now, as we've looked through the book of Romans, you remember back to the very beginning, about a year and a half ago, Romans chapter 1, verse 17, we had the theme verse of the letter where Paul is describing the gospel and he says, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And so this life that we are living, it's based upon our faith, our belief in Jesus Christ, that we have received a belief 
in Christ, and that is a transformative power in our lives. So you see how Romans 12 through 16 about the Christian life, living a transformed Christian life, it flows out of this doctrine of salvation by God's grace through faith that Paul developed in the earlier part of this letter. Now, as we are embarking at a new section in Romans, I thought I'd put up here for you as a reminder the outline that we've been working with for the book of Romans. And I seem to recall this being my own outline. I was probably inspired by some others that I looked at. But you see here on the outline that we have these three central parts, point three, four, and five, focusing on the Trinity. Christ's work, the Spirit's work, and the Father's will. We just finished up Romans 9 through 11 with a 15-week study of those chapters, looking at the Father's will. Christ's work, of course, is the work of propitiation, redemption by his blood. And then the Spirit's work is that work of transformation in our daily lives as a result of our justification by Christ's work. So that middle section there, section 4, chapters 5 through 8, it has a lot of bearing on where we're going here in section number 6, that the church's work in Romans 12 through 15 is the practical outworkings of being filled with the Holy Spirit. The new covenant not only wipes away our sins, but it also gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit dwells within us, then we are able to live the life of Jesus Christ. We're able to do all of the things that he taught us as genuine Christians. Christians are those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, the Spirit is at work in us. And what it looks like, what is the practical outworking of those theoretical ideas that he had in Romans 5, Romans 5 through 8 is the theory, Romans 12 through 15 is the practice. So that gives you an idea of where we are in the letter and where we have been. So our outline for today, Romans 12, 1 and 2, our theme, our subject is spiritual transformation. You need to be transformed in your spirit and that's going to transform the way you live your life. Verse 1a, looking at mercy's appeal to us as brothers and then the living sacrifice that we are to offer to God as a thanksgiving offering. Now when you hear about sacrifice, you always think about Christ's sacrifice that we commemorate. But here, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, the idea is on giving our own life as a sacrifice to God. We make an offering of our life to God as a living sacrifice. And then that appeal to present yourself as a living sacrifice is explained, it's stated in another way in verse 2, that this involves that transformation, that spiritual transformation that is the opposite of being conformed to the world. There are those who are in the world who are not saved and those who have been saved out of the world. And there's two different beliefs, there's two different worldviews, there's two different relationships to God that issue forth in two different lifestyles. How should we then live? That's the transformation that Paul is talking about here, not being conformed to the world. So that is the big idea. That's where we're going today. Look again at the verses, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We're coming hot off the heels of chapter 11, verses 33 to 36, where Paul issued forth in praise to God a wonderful doxology that was a response to all of the doctrine that he had explored in Romans 1 through 11. And not only do we praise God for all that he has done for us, the mercies of God, but we also live a life of thankfulness 
in response to God's mercies. And so chapter 11, verses 33 to 36, and chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, are actually very closely related, even though we're entering into this new section. All right? It was a great transition between chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 through 16. Now, I want you to take a look at the opening words of chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. I love the way that Paul and the other apostles appeal to fellow Christians where they have the authority of apostles to command, they often take this humble stance of rather appealing to those who they are on the same spiritual level with. Now, because Paul and Peter and the other apostles are humble and they don't always throw their authority around, don't think that they don't have authority. They do have authority, but they don't throw their authority around because more important, more essential to who Paul is and who Peter is and who the Christians are that he's writing to, including us by the Holy Spirit, more important than the authority structure is the equality that exists among us. Even though there are apostles in the church, even though there are pastors in the church, even though there are elders in the church who have a a measure of spiritual authority, that's not the defining element of our relationship. The defining element of our relationship is you are my brother and I am your brother. We are equal in Jesus Christ. And so while there is a hierarchy, the hierarchy is not foundational. It's not definitional. But instead, our relationship to one another as equals is what defines our relationship at its most fundamental level. You see this in Paul's attitude. You see this in Peter's attitude. And you see it in the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how you differentiate between a church that is not following the Lord Jesus Christ's teaching and a church that is following the Lord Jesus Christ's teaching. Do those who are in authority in the church throw their weight around or are they humble servants to those who are in God's congregation? You've got to look for that. That is a telling sign of whether a church is spirit-filled or whether a church is not spirit-filled. Come back to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, you have the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ on this subject. I want to look at the first 12 verses. We're not going to unpack everything that's here, but I just want you to catch what Jesus is teaching about the equality that exists among brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Followed the Lord's teaching there? Now, we don't use the word rabbi in our circles. But we do use the word pastor. 
Now, the Bible, the New Testament, uses the word pastor, teacher, to describe an office within the church. But you have to be careful how you use it, okay? I don't want to be going around making sure that everyone is calling me pastor. If that becomes a concern of mine, then you're going to have to tell me to, to take it easy, Timothy. Yeah, you're the pastor, you get to preach, but don't, don't get a big head. And, and remember that, that we're all brothers here. You don't have to be worried about titles and honor and, and whether or not you're getting the respect that you deserve. No, you are looking out for other people. And that's what we want all of God's leaders to be doing, following after what Jesus Christ says here. Call no man your father. Call, call no man your pastor. You have one pastor, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not anyone else. All right, so that is important. And I want to show you some other key examples in the New Testament of Paul and the apostles enacting this teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and taking this humble place in how they instruct the brothers and sisters in the church. Romans 15, 14, just a little bit later here in Romans, Paul gets towards the end of his letter. After he's done with most of his instruction, he reminds the church there, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, notice again, calls them brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. John does this with the churches that he writes to. He says, you guys don't have any need of anyone to teach you. You know all things. That you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the people of God. You are the ones who already know God and know the truth. And, and so you don't need some ecclesiastical authority telling you what to think and what to believe. That's what John was saying when he wrote his letter to the churches in 1 John. And that's the attitude that Paul here has as he's writing to the church at Rome. I'm just reminding you of things that you know. I'm just exhorting you about things that you yourselves know and are able to instruct one another because we're all equals here. It's important to keep that in mind. Notice how Paul addresses the Thessalonians. We had this in our scripture reading a little bit ago this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul wrote and said, actually, turn to 1 Thessalonians 4 once again. Go from Romans. I want you to see several verses here. We've got a lot of verses this morning, so we'll turn to a few of them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 after Paul has given a lot of the doctrinal content and given updates about his travels and his desire to be with the Thessalonians, then he transitions to his ethical instruction, just like he does in Romans chapter 12, in the same way. You see this pattern in Paul's letters. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you, notice he's asking and urging. He could command, but he doesn't throw his weight around. He asks and urges, not subjects, but brothers, brothers, we urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And then you come down a little bit later, verses 9 through 11. You're looking there in verses 9 through 11. He says, Now, concerning brotherly love, which is one of the most important things to instruct us on and remind us of and to exhort us in, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Just like John says, Paul says that here. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. There is a deep respect that the apostles have for the people of God. And this is what leaders show towards those that they are leading. A deep respect. If your leaders are not respecting you, then they're not Christian leaders. They're not faithful leaders. They're not leaders who are pleasing to God. That there's a respect here that the apostles have 
for those that they are shepherding. He says, You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. This is the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. You are a priest. You don't have a priest who's over you. You are a priest. And we have one great high priest who's the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're all brothers with this spiritual priesthood that he's given to us. This was a foundational principle of the Reformation. When the hierarchy of the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church was challenged according to this teaching and this example in the Scriptures to show that, no, all of God's people are holy. All of God's people have the Holy Spirit. And you can trust them with holy things. You can trust them with the Word of God. You can trust them to instruct one another and to teach one another and to be filled with goodness. You don't have to have some ecclesiastical authority being dogmatic over God's people. So here Paul shows that concern. Notice verse 10. He says, that indeed is what you are doing. What? He, they're loving one another, which is Christ's main commandment. To all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers. Again, he's urging. And urging is somewhere between asking and commanding. It's the encouragement of a friend. That's what urging is. Somebody who's not saying, well, you have to do this because you know, I'm in charge. This is a friend who's coming along and saying, I urge you to do this. I, I can, I'm not commanding it, but I really think it's important and it's for your good that you do this. Do this more and more. And he goes on with that instruction in verse 11. Another example. I like to show you many examples so you know that I'm not just making this up, but this is in fact the pattern that we find in Scripture. In Ephesians 1-3, through 3, you've got the doctrine of the church, the ecclesiology, and mixed in with the soteriology that is great in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and so on. And after all that wonderful doctrine, then Paul transitions, just like he does in Romans chapter 12, to the practical exhortation. What does it look like to live the Christian life? And this is how Paul does it. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. He doesn't say I'm, I'm an apostle, I'm an authority. He says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I'm suffering and that suffering testifies of my love and devotion to God and it's, it's why you should listen to me more than just my authority is, is the fact that I'm suffering for Christ and I'm suffering for you. I love you. So this prisoner of the Lord is urging us Christians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Wonderful example from the heart of a faithful pastor. And then, I didn't want to leave Peter out. Peter, writing the same way, said, Beloved, I urge you, there's that word again, urge, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. How are we supposed to live the Christian life well, the apostles are there as brothers urging us on to practical holiness. All right? Now, as I mentioned, there is still authority structure in the church. Uh, it's just that the authority is only used when it has to be used, and it's only used for the good of others. It's never used for self-exaltation. And that's the way it should be in a, a husband's authority in the home. That's the way it should be in a pastor's authority in the church. That's the way it should be with a government's authority in the public sphere, a teacher's authority in classroom, uh, everywhere, uh, a boss's authority at work. You don't throw your authority around in order to be a big deal. Now, you only use your authority to get the job done and to make sure that other people are able to do what God has created them to do. That's the purpose of authority. 
So that's why Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, who sometimes were a little disobedient to God, he said, for this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. We don't want to use our authority. We want to just say, hey, do what's right. I'm your friend. I'm your brother. Let's be in this together. And there's a great example of this when I worked at Hy-Vee, my first job, and I learned from my bosses, they didn't just throw their weight around and say, Timothy, go, go do this and go do that, but they would ask. Say, Timothy, would you go do this? Would you please go do that? And, and that's what a good leader does. And so that's what we see happening here with the disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's just a reminder for me and for all who are in any authority. But there are times where people have to be reminded of their authority because they're too timid, they're too weak, they're they're not standing up for what's right. And so Paul had to encourage Titus to declare these things, that is the practical Christian life that we are called to live, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. So, you know, we've got to keep both truths here. We're not using authority to exalt ourselves, but there is an authority that the church uses for your good so that you are walking in God's will and being blessed in that way. All right, so that brings us to the second half of point number one. We are being exhorted here by mercy. Mercy is appealing to the brothers here in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And that's because Paul says that he is appealing through or by the mercies of God. So it's kind of like the mercies of God are saying this through Paul, and Paul is the mouthpiece for something or someone else. Paul does this a number of times throughout his writings, and here he entreats by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. This meekness and gentleness of Christ is the spirit of Christ that is working through Paul. And so in the same way here in Romans chapter 12, it is the mercy of God that is speaking and urging through the spirit of the Apostle Paul as he's been filled with the knowledge of God's mercy, as he's written to them the doctrine of God's mercy. Now all of that truth is urging them on to present their bodies as a living sacrifice. When we think about God's mercy, it's something that we could never extol enough. God's mercy is a costly mercy. It costs him the life of his son. It's an extravagant mercy. It's a mercy that goes way beyond anything that anyone would ever imagine that somebody would do for his enemies. It's an eternal difference-making mercy. There's nothing that God could have done that could have benefited you more and made a more impactful difference in your existence for the ages of the ages to come than what God has done in his mercy. It's a death-to-life kind of mercy. It's not just a little thing. We're talking about things of utmost importance. Eternal fire versus eternal glory. The mercy of God toward us has now defined the rest of our lives and it's given us new purpose in all that we do. When you know and understand the mercy of God, it has a transformative effect on your heart, soul, and mind. Why you live your life. Think about an example of of a man who is in combat. And he's got a friend who dies in combat in order to save his friend's life. And that man whose life has been saved by his friend, now he's got a, a new purpose in life. His purpose in life is to honor that friend. 
I wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for this guy. And so I'm going to think about his family. And his family doesn't have him there anymore. And maybe I can help support the family in his absence. And I'm going to think about his parents. His parents don't have a son anymore. Maybe I can just try to be a friend. I could never take his place, but I'm going to just try to do what I can to fill a little bit of that hole that's left in the parent's life. And he goes back home from war, and he's got a new purpose in everything that he does. He says, I owe my life to this guy, and I'm going to live in that reality. And that's what Paul is urging us to do. He says, you owe your life to Jesus Christ. So live for Jesus Christ. That analogy falls short of the amazing mercy of God towards us. And you can hear the voice of God's mercy urging us in our hearts to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Let's take a look at the sacrifice, this living sacrifice that Paul talks about. Now, in the actual grammar of the Greek, living, holy, and acceptable all come after the word sacrifice, and they all are equal in their weight. They're just three adjectives that are all modifying in the same way the noun of a sacrifice. Now, this word for sacrifice is, of course, the Levitical word, the word that is used for an actual offering in an actual temple, an actual animal that would be offered. And so the first thing that Paul wants to tell us about this sacrifice is that it's not a dead sacrifice, because that's what most sacrifices in temples were. You'd cut the throat of the animal, you'd drain out the blood, and then you'd cut it up and you'd burn part of it on the altar. And, and it was not alive anymore. It was now a dead animal that has been sacrificed to God. And Paul is saying, well, that's not the kind of sacrifice I'm talking about. I'm talking about a sacrifice of your life. That you don't have to die in order to offer this offering to God, but God wants you to keep on living. And he wants you to live every moment and live every day as a sacrifice to God. And sacrifices, not only in this case are supposed to be living, but as all sacrifices in the Bible, they're supposed to be holy. There's a key word there that describes the Christian life. That this is essential, this is foundational. The Christian life is a life of holiness. And I am afraid that so many so-called Christians have no concept and no idea what holiness is and are not living in holiness at all. And when Christians do try to live a holy life and urge a holy life, they say, ah, you're being a legalist. Don't be a legalist. The call to holiness is something that is throughout all of Scripture. It is one of the first things that God mentions and commands in every place where he talks about the Christian life. It is reiterated so strongly and we are warned in the same context, against the danger of worldliness. Holiness is the opposite of worldliness. What is holiness? God takes great pains to detail and define the concept of holiness throughout the Bible. Holiness, another word for it, is sacredness. Something that is holy is something that is sacred. Your life is to be sacred. It's to be holy. The way you conduct yourselves. Another word for that would be to be set apart. Something that is sacred is not ordinary, it's not common, it's special, it's set apart. And so your life is not supposed to be the ordinary life. Your life is not supposed to be the common life. You're not supposed to be like everyone else. You're supposed to be different. Set apart for God's purposes. 
God is the most exalted, the most important, the most pure in all of the universe. And to be holy means that you share in his purposes and in his purity. You have God's design on your life and that you do things God's way, not the way of ordinary people. That's what holiness entails. The opposite of holiness is to be common, dirty, or vile. Common, dirty, or vile. Our words are not supposed to be common, dirty, or vile. Our actions are not supposed to be common, dirty, or vile. We are to be morally pure. This is the sacrifice that God is looking for, a living sacrifice of moral purity before God. That is holiness. And this living sacrifice, this holy sacrifice, is a sacrifice that is acceptable to God. You can go back and read in Leviticus 1-7 through about all the different sacrifices that God ordained for the people of Israel to offer at the tabernacle and then later as the tabernacle transitioned into the temple. And all of those sacrifices, that when they do them according to God's written word, according to his exact instructions, then they offer up the burnt offering and it is an aroma that is soothing, pleasing to God. And that's the Greek word here that is brought over to apply to our living sacrifice. That just as those animal sacrifices were to be holy, just as they were acceptable to God, so that is what now transfers to our life of sacrifice before God. Paul uses this same metaphor of the well-pleasing sacrifice to God that comes from the Old Testament Levitical sacrifices to talk about the monetary gift that the Philippians sent to him through Epaphroditus in order to support his missionary work. That this was a sacrifice that was well-pleasing, same word, to God. He also uses it here at the end of this letter, Romans chapter 15, verse 16, about how Paul is offering up Gentile believers to God as a sanctified offering, well-pleasing to God. He uses the word sanctified, which is another word for holiness, and the well-pleasing, and he's offering it. So he has the, the same concept here of what he is trying to do. What is it that the apostles were trying to accomplish in all of their work for the Lord Jesus Christ? What is it that faithful pastors, teachers of God's word, are trying to accomplish in the lives of God's people It's that you would be a holy people. That you would be a living sacrifice. That you would have a life that is well-pleasing to God. If I have any other design or any other intention, then that's not from the Lord Jesus Christ. My only design and intention for you is that you be this holy and living sacrifice before God. That was Paul's desire. That was his exhortation, his appeal to the brothers here in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now, he identifies this presentation of a sacrifice, living, holy, and acceptable. He identifies this as your spiritual worship. He's using very Levitical terminology throughout this opening verse. He's been talking about the sacrifices. And when he talks about your spiritual worship, the word worship there is a particular word that doesn't just mean worship in general, but it actually means temple service, the types of things that literal priests did in literal temples. That's the language that he's using here. And so we talked earlier about the priesthood of the believer. You are priests, and you are offering up spiritual sacrifices to God. This is your spiritual priestly work. You have a priestly work to do before God. And what is that priestly work? 
It's to live a life of holiness, a life that is well-pleasing to God. Well, what is a life of holiness? What is a life that's well-pleasing to God? Well, come back for the next 20 weeks, and I'll be telling you all about it from Romans chapters 12 through 16, right? And all of what Jesus taught in the Gospels and all of what the other apostles teach in all of their letters, and including the teaching, the instruction that we get even from the Old Testament law on God's character and the nature of ethics. So, we want this for ourselves. We want to be offering up spiritual worship before God. Now, that word spiritual, take note of that word in your text. This is your spiritual worship. That is a good translation of a notoriously difficult word to translate. It's hard to get this meaning across exactly what this word is about. And so I've got a quotation here that I think helps from a contemporary of the Apostle Paul, Epictetus, who was not a Christian. He was a Stoic philosopher. And he uses this word. He said, If I were a nightingale, I should be singing as a nightingale. If I were a swan, as a swan. But as it is, I am a rational being. And the word there for rational being is logikos, or logikos, which is the word here that Paul uses for spiritual. It's our logikos worship. It's our rational worship. It's what separates mankind from the animals that we have the Logos as our connection between God and us, that we are able to understand the Word of God, the thoughts of God, the mind of God, because of God's grace, because we are created in the image of God. And so as those who are created in the image of God, we have a special and unique way in which we can worship God, spiritually, rationally, what is pertaining to the human mind, that God wants your mind to be the worship, the sacrifice, You have a spiritual sacrifice because you are a rational being. Therefore, I must be singing hymns of praise to God. That catches, I think, the idea that Paul is also using this same word to describe Christian service to God. Now, Paul is not the only one who uses this metaphor throughout Scripture. The writer of Hebrews also does a great job of bringing in the temple worship which was a paradigm, which was a metaphor for the new covenant and the temple of God that we are. So you could accuse the apostles of spiritualizing some of the uh, language of the Old Testament. And, and, uh, you know, in fact, that's the translation that we have here, spiritual worship. So they're spiritualizing it, and, you know, that's, that's the word he uses. We're talking about spiritual worship. We're talking about the mental, not, not the, the physical temple. We're talking about the spiritual temple that we are. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says at the end of his letter, all of the instruction he's given, just as Paul has a therefore, Hebrews has a therefore, therefore, in light of the mercies of God, in light of the grace of God, in light of the new covenant, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This gratitude is what fuels and motivates the Christian life. We're not trying to earn our way to heaven. We've been given a gift of righteousness that is our ticket to heaven. And so instead of working to try to earn some kind of favor, we have been given God's favor, and now we live a life of gratitude, just like the man who lives a life of gratitude for his friend who died to save his life in combat. Jesus Christ died to save your life. Now, therefore... Let us offer to God acceptable worship. Worship, the same word there that we have in Romans 12, latreia, refers to temple service, temple worship. And acceptable, same word that we have referring to the offerings that were offered in the temple, that they were well-pleasing, they were acceptable to God. So the writer of Hebrews uses this same metaphor of the Old Testament temple for the New Testament church. All right? 
And then 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 is another great example of this. Why don't you turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's take a look at that in its context. This is going to be a two-part sermon. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Pick it up there in your text in verse 4. Here's where the metaphor begins. As you come to him, a living stone, notice again the emphasis on living as opposed to the dead stones of the old temple, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Here's the spiritual house, the house of the mind, the house of the mental world, the spiritual world, the rational world. That you are the spiritual house and you are to be a holy priesthood, offering up spiritual sacrifices. Same terminology there. The spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, will not be put to shame. So, Peter uses this, the writer of Hebrews uses it, Paul uses it, this wonderful metaphor of how we offer up spiritual service to God. Now next week, what we're going to do is we're going to continue on from here, looking at verse 2, what it looks like to offer up these spiritual sacrifices. This is what is going to differentiate us as followers of Jesus Christ from those who are without God and unsaved who are in the world. We don't want to be conformed to the world's mode of thinking, their way of reasoning, their way of acting, their methodology, their goals, their ambitions. All of that is worldliness. But instead, we have a transformed way of thinking. We have a transformed motivation. We have a transformed goal. We have transformed methods. We just live differently, a totally different mold, this transformed spiritual life. So we'll take a look at worldliness in contrast to what true Christians are supposed to be in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, next week. But let's end this portion of the service as we prepare for our communion table with a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? God, I thank you for this opportunity this morning to be reminded of what we are and what we are called to be in light of all that you have done for us, in light of the new birth that we have experienced, in light of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, in light of the new life that we experience, Lord God, we can live born again. We can live transformed. We can live Christ-like. He who is so different from those who are the common ordinary people in this world, from those who are sinful and stained by corruption. We thank you, Lord God, that we have the mind of Christ and we can live the life of Christ, not because of anything we are in ourselves, but just because of your grace and mercy found in Jesus Christ. And as we do so, Lord, I pray that you would allow the light of Jesus Christ to shine brightly in our communities, in our workplaces, in our homes, and that we might lead many others to the knowledge of Christ, to escape from the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire, and to be able to live a life of purpose and meaning and holiness and purity, righteousness and goodness in your sight. For our good and for your glory. Amen.